But Luke chapter 8 tonight, uh, uh, we'll be looking at really the last portion of that chapter, verses 40 through 56. And um, so I want you to have that handy there. Uh, but before we get started, well, we'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll pray. And uh, then we will make some comments, uh, the comments that I believe the Lord has laid upon my heart to share with you tonight. So at the heading of Luke chapter 8, verse 40, uh, I have uh, the heading, Miracles of Healing. And uh, uh, we're going to take a look at this, uh, this regular um, unparalleled report. Um, it's unparalleled in the sense that we have two miracles intertwined together. And it's unparalleled in any of the other reports of miracles. Usually, or not usually, uh, all of the other miracles reported in the Gospels are usually handled one at a time. Uh, but here, uh, this, these two miracles are intertwined. And uh, there's something that we, in here that I believe we really want to take note of. Um, but verse number 40, I'll read as you listen. And as Jesus returned, so remember he was on the one side of the Sea of Galilee, now he's returning. Remember he was, last week he was dealing with the, uh, uh, the demon-possessed man and the pig farmers and the, uh, the townspeople. And uh, he was sort of in Gentile territory. Uh, and now he returns back across the, 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 the lake there into Jewish territory. And they're waiting for him there. As Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jarius, Jer uh, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, as the idea here is, as he went to go with uh, this man to his house to care for this daughter, the, the crowds pressed in on him, our text tells us, in such a way that he couldn't continue to go. The crowds were pressing against him. And while that was happening, verse 43, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone uh, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. We, we understand this probably be a vaginal hemorrhage of some sort that she was enduring for 12 years. Uh, this was having an effect upon her. She's nameless in our text. And she said, who is, and, and Jesus said, verse 45, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, uh, they are crowding and pressing in on you. And the idea here is how, how can, everyone was touching you, in a sense, is what G, Peter is saying. But Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out, had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped noticed, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, unfortunately here, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John, James and the girl's father and mother. Verse 52, now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. Uh, this speaks to a, a custom there in, uh, in early uh, Judaism here where they would literally hire professional mourners. And, and uh, this is probably what is going on here in verse 52. So they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but she said, but he said, stop weeping for she has not died, but is asleep. 
and how quickly their emotions change. Somehow they, they turn and spin, and their mourning turns into sort of a mocking laugh at Jesus because according to their own estimation, and what is true, the child had died, but obviously they did not know to whom they were speaking. Jesus, however, took her, the little daughter, the 12-year-old girl, and called saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. Very natural reality. And her parents were amazed. But unlike the formerly demon-possessed man that we learned of last week, where he was commanded to remain and tell about what Jesus had done, here in this case, Jesus commands the parents. He instructs them to tell no one what had happened. All right, let's look to the Lord in prayer here as we get ready to uh, dive into this text together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the joy that we as uh, a New Testament local church have to love, to love in ways that we've never really had to before. We thank you that you're preparing us for something even greater. Uh, the joy of even more maturely and more profoundly demonstrating love, not only to each other, but to our community. Oh, Lord, uh, they are scared, they are frightened. Uh, they are, for the first time, uh, considering the tragic reality of death in ways that perhaps they've never had to before. And, and yet this is truly a gift, dear God. The book of Proverbs teaches us that we're to see the evil afar off. This is what wise people do, and they make preparation. And Lord, the evil far off is the reality that we are all are going to die, and certainly dying of COVID is tragic. But Lord, we would argue that death is always tragic. Uh, we would argue that it's a human invader, or it's an invader on the human experience. And you never meant it to be this way, but sin has given it entrance. And so we labor under it. Uh, we take great delight when we read these passages where you beat it back, Lord Jesus, when you were here present with us. But now that you're gone, ascended to the right hand of the throne of the Father on high, we... we possess not your presence and miraculous power, but we possess promises. We, press a, we possess a confession. And we enjoy power over the corrupting influence of sin and death over our own character. And we have the ability to, <coughs> in that sense, live above the dominion of death. And we thank you for that. And uh, so I pray, Lord, you gather our hearts together. Father, keep the church from losing her sight, losing her passion. Uh, forgive us, Lord, for getting caught up. Uh, thank you for our government and their, our officials and for the job they're seeking and trying to do. And uh, we pray, Lord, that this would all fall out simply to the furtherance of the gospel. We pray earnestly for uh, the evangelistic opportunity we have in our own neighborhoods. I pray for my own friends, Lord, how dear they are how they need to be prepared for the time when they will leave this earth and come into the presence of the God of heaven. I pray that you would give me the opportunity to share with them the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we know you await your second coming because you pity, you long that no one should perish. And judgment is horrific in that seven-year hour, uh, that time of Jacob's trouble. So we pray that while you are patient, that you give us fruit, fruit that remains, some fivefold, tenfold, a hundredfold, we pray. And uh, help us to be faithful in that. Lord, we pray for uh, the Derby next week. We thank you so much for the sacrifice of many who will be here 
serving. We pray for parents as they bring their children that they would perhaps even for the very first time begin to enjoy a disciple-making relationship with their children. They are the primary disciple-makers. And, and perhaps, Lord, this, 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 this virus is going to press that upon each of our consciences as parents more profoundly uh, and, and help us to do what Deuteronomy 6 has commanded us to do and to be that mouthpiece of the love of God and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for that as well. So we pray that that would be a success from the standpoint of furthering a disciple-making effort uh, in, in our own families. Pray for those who come who don't know Jesus, that they would be turned uh, to faith and repentance, uh, that they would succumb and, and, and bow to the authority of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to not only forgive their sin, but to uh, dictate uh, their lives and to encourage them in holiness. And we thank you for that, Lord. We love you. We commend these things to you. We confess we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it seems to be uh, a very important guiding light these days is the question of one's passion. What are you passionate about? Uh, that question is often asked with the hope of finding some guidance for life. Certainly, a desire is a component for discovering God's will for a life, but I certainly would caution, and I think all of our pastors and hopefully uh, disciple-makers would caution that it's not uh, 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 the only component of decisions made in the will of God. There are many other components, but passion certainly can be one of those, desire. Tonight, Luke helps us with a critically important question, perhaps a more important question even than what are you passionate about. What is Jesus passionate about? You know, there's so many misapprehensions and misunderstandings about this simple question about Jesus. Some argue that Jesus' passion was to be a charismatic healer, as they observe the Gospels, and they believe that was his passion. Some say his passion was that of sort of a cynic philosopher, and he had come to abolish the existing hierarchical, patriarchal structures of society of his time. Some believe him to be a prophet of social change, and others would argue that he was a simple rabbi. Some scholars have said that he was just another wise man among many. Some scholars have even suggested that he was a magician in the history of magicianhood in the early New Testament times. Many even like Leo Tolstoy, for reasons obvious, taught that Jesus was a Christian anarchist. It's interesting to note that even psychiatrists have made Jesus their study, and many of them would argue or suggest that Jesus must have had to have a mental disorder. According to Mark chapter 3, they would say, verse 21, they would reason from that passage. They would say that the evidence there is clear that Jesus had difficulties communicating uh, with the outside world and suffered from a multiple personality disorder. Well, tonight, Luke, the historian, continues his quest for exactness. We remember that in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. He teaches us, as he teaches Theophilus, that if faith rather than felt needs is always paramount in importance to Jesus, that was our lesson from last week, if that is true, then there must be a more insidious threat to humanity than unfulfilled desires and dreams. Luke points out 
that Jesus' actions, or really by Jesus' actions and words, he clearly demonstrates that Jesus' passion was dealing with humanity's greatest threat. Humanity's greatest threat is death and sin with all of their corrupting influences. To be exact, we could argue, according to the report of Luke here, Jesus hates death, sin, and physical and moral corruption. His passion in his earthly ministry was to bring divine power to bear and beat back sin and death wherever he found it. It is in our paragraph tonight that humanity finds solidarity. There is a single requirement to be the object of Jesus' passion, of Jesus' longing. There's a single requirement. You must be under the dominion of sin and death with all of its corrupting influences. Thankfully, therefore, we are all the objects of Jesus' passion. At the outset, just even before we get started, we made comment of this already, we want to take note of the fact that these two miraculous events are intertwined. This report is, is given in other gospel accounts, and there they're found intertwined as well. And it's unlike any other report of any of the other miracles found in the gospels. These are intertwined together. It is in this passage that we get a glimpse into Jesus' burning passion. Again, Jesus' passion is the destruction of death and sin with all of their corruptive influence. This passion, I believe, is attested to by three proofs taken from our passage. The first proof I want us to see in support of and argument of what I believe is Jesus' true passion is this. Jesus' passion is demonstrated by the fact that it transcends class, gender, or age. It has no, no uh, uh, limits in that sense, and therefore, I believe, qualifies for a true passion. Jesus' passion transcends class, gender, or age in order to destroy death, sin, and all of its corruptive influence. We see here, given in our text, this report by Luke the doctor under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, essentially three different classes of individuals. We have a, the first class is, is someone taken from the ruling class. This is Jarius, the, the official of the synagogue. He's called here. He's the ruling class. Uh, this idea of official is translated in other, play, in other translations as leader. Um, and it is, in fact, probably a, a specific uh, 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 title that he, with, give, with res, given responsibilities uh, in the synagogue. He was probably a man who was very, very well known as the main elder who oversaw the organization of the services. In that sense, he was probably viewed as the administrative pastor, if you will. Uh, so the first thing we observe as we view the official of the synagogue here is Jesus is not anti-Jewish. He is not anti-synagogue insofar as Jews and their leaders of synagogues are, in fact, like everyone else, under the awful, corruptive, destructive influence of sin and death. Here we find Darius coming to Jesus, falling at Jesus' feet. Our text says that he implores Jesus 
If it were not enough that his child is dying, he has been already observing the life being taken out of his 12-year-old daughter. We find later on in the report that she, in fact, dies. This, by the way, is his only daughter. She's a child of just 12 years old. Here's death's most brutal exercise, it could be argued. It is said that there is nothing more unnatural than for a parent to bury their child. Some of you under the sound of my voice tonight understand this. Death destroys not just through the taking of a life. It treacherously causes those who in fact experience the death of a child and of a very precious loved one to feel, though they are living, to feel like they are dead themselves. Depression, anxiousness, Sorrow, these corruptive influence that literally sap the life out of human experience. Jesus does not get caught up in the fact that this is a Jew. Remember, the Jews have already reported by this time in Luke's report that they were they had no interest in Jesus, at least from. Uh, a religious leader's standpoint. The Pharisees had already declared that uh, as far as they were concerned, Jesus did the works that he did by the power of no one less than Satan himself. And, and Jesus had sort of uh, uh, began the process of, of preparing his disciples for the fact that, that his kingdom program would, would be delayed that there would be a, a new era of, of a new faith community and that the expectations of, of the ruling and reigning of Jesus as Messiah would, would be greatly delayed. Jesus knew all of that. And he even began to be, speak in parables by this time, to, to, to hide, to curtail the nation of Israel, to prepare for the fact that he would ascend into heaven and be gone from us and this new era of the church age would, would begin. But none of that kept him, uh, the, that offense by the leadership of the nation of Israel, never, none of that kept him from ministering to this official of the synagogue who was undergoing the awful, awful, realities of sin and death and all of their corruptive influence. The second person we see here, the, uh, we said we transcends class here, gender as well. We, we have given to us in verse 43 a, a nameless woman. Uh, if we go from the class of, of ruling leadership, uh, we know that women were not given much of a place in Roman culture they were given much greater place in Jewish culture. But here we observe that she's nameless. Um, unlike the official of the synagogue, she had lost her identity. Her personal identity seems to have been lost in her 12-year-long malady giving not just her health, but also her whole life. Uh, we understand what her malady is by a mere simple reading of Leviticus chapter 15. Not only was she uh, physically distraught, this physical ailment had caused her to be ceremonially unclean. And obviously in the Jewish context, she had, in that sense, lost all social standing. 
She had literally been alone, literally been incapable of entering into all of the wonderful fellowship of national Israel because given her condition, she was unclean. She, in fact, was treated like the lepers, who, but without the gracious opportunity to be cast out of the city to find their own colony and to find some sort of commiseration and fellowship in that community, as difficult as that was, she didn't even get to enjoy that. This, to some degree, was a rather embarrassing malady. It was a, it was a, a malady of... of uh, that, that challenges uh, the feminine physiology. It was, it was something that, that was a very difficult thing, a very difficult. And Jesus, Jesus, not worried about class, gender, is going to give this woman back not only her health, but he's going to give her back her whole life as she found herself weighed down 12 years under the awful corruptive influence of sin and death. We have a child here of just 12 years old. Here, here age would bring into it. This I know is related to the uh, official of the synagogue, but we could perhaps treat them together and also separately. Here a child. Uh, as we mentioned, death's most brutal exercise. Most unnatural thing. The life taken in the very spring of life. This is death at its darkest, most corruptive exercise. So Jesus' passion transcends class, gender, or age. By way of application this morning, it becomes important that like Jesus... The passion of the church must transcend class, gender, or age as we focus with Jesus on beating back the corruptive influence of death and sin wherever we find it. Now, it is true that we join Jesus' passion not in the same way that Jesus exercised it when he was here on this earth, Jesus is no longer here with us. He has ascended to the right hand of the throne of the Father on high. He is preparing a place for us, we're told in John 14. But he will one day come back again for us. And in that day, we will once again be able to observe Jesus physically beating back the corruptive influences of sin and death. But until then... We have Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 39. We live by faith. Galatians teaches us, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. Uh, this is before Jesus comes, the law being a tutor. Um, but verse 25, the apostle reports this truth. But now that faith has come, Jesus has come, he has been here, he has demonstrated his desire to beat back sin and death with all of its corruptive influence uh, physically in miracles, spiritually in the cross, and restoring us back to profitability in the empty tomb. And it goes on to give us the implications of the empty tomb. And he says, Paul says this, for, for now that faith has come, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you were baptized into Christ. There's our union with Christ. We have this amazing union. We, we have had the, the, the rationalizing capability, the, the decision-making apparatus of our whole being has been transformed by our union with Christ. We are no longer governed by the rationalizing ideas of death. We have a new option. We have new realities. 
for you are clothed with Christ. And then he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. Here it is again emphasized that, that there is no class or gender in Christ. We are all united together as victims, if you will. Certainly our own sin, but, but the dominion of sin uh, and how it causes us to be separated from the mind of God and the pathway to holiness. But in Christ, that's all been changed. Jesus clothes, clothes us, clothes our broken humanity in himself. We are, on, we are in a regal status, regardless of the ravages of sin and death. He gives us a new family. He makes us all one in Christ. Unity and peace is finally possible as we now rationalize according to the living hope that we have in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we no longer just throw up our hands in disgust over our sin and just simply say, I can't help it. And in that moment, only to have the corruptive aspects of sin just ravage not only ourselves, but uh, the lives of those that we love. No, we have the truth. We can help it. Jesus has commanded us. He's given us a new nature. We can discipline ourselves unto godly living, godly thinking. We can enjoy the ecstasy of holiness in our life. What a great truth. What a great Lord. But we join together with Jesus concerning his passion. So not only does Jesus' passion transcend, or transcend class, age, and gender, our second proof tonight is that Jesus' passion is demonstrated by the fact that it overcomes what seems to be insurmountable obstacles in order to destroy death, sin, and all of their corruptive influences. Jeriah's face, death. Death of, for all humanity is an insurmountable obstacle. In verses 54 and 55 in our passage, Jesus overcomes this insurmountable obstacle with an ease that is breathtaking. Jesus overcomes the greatest enemy that plagues us with two very simple words. Child, arise. I don't even think he had to say it real loud, like I just said it. <laughs> He's the creator of the universe. He has divine power. These two simple words send chills down the back of all of humanity. The authority and power of which they speak is far beyond even the wildest imaginations of mankind. Death is supposed to be final. It's supposed to be it. To Jesus, it is simply an obstacle to be easily overcome. Another insurmountable obstacle that faces us in the text is this woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Our text tells us in verse 43 that she could not be healed by anyone. And remember who's reporting this. This is Luke the doctor. This is a rather embarrassing confession for Luke to make. There is nothing the medical community with all of its understanding and wisdom concerning the human body at this time and there were many things that they could do. But for this woman, they could do absolutely nothing. This was an insurmountable obstacle. Disease is often an insurmountable obstacle. The woman was herself hopeless. And in fact, we would argue not only had, was she hopeless, but hopeless was coupled with desperation. Twelve years, long years. She had lost not only her health, but her whole social ability to, to interact in the community that God had placed her. She was so desperate that uh, other gospel accounts report that she thought, well, maybe if I can just touch his garment, 
She had just sort of given up on medicine. She had really given up on religion. And from her perspective, this was going to be sort of a magical kind of uh, uh, an approach. Uh, she had probably seen talisman and magicians and perhaps even witchcraft. And, and she had felt, she had seen if they just could touch. And so she was going to go this route. She was desperate. So we have a woman hemorrhaging for 12 years. We have, as, as our text moves on from her, we, we'll finish that story in a bit, but, but our text moves on for her and it takes us to uh, uh, the, the feet now of this deceased 12-year-old child where we have these professional mourners and, and here we find another insurmountable obstacle as, as Jesus is literally personally ridiculed. You know, personal ridicule can be an insurmountable obstacle. People had, uh, uh, Jesus had pity. Instead of reacting and responding to this personal ridicule, he, he understood that people who live constantly under the dominion of sin and death believe that any sort of bodily resurrection, any sort of life beyond death is the height of absurdity. But it's only the height of absurdity for those of us who only know death. We have yet to experience life, although we enjoy life, the new life in Christ. Those of us who are in Christ, we, we sense that new life. We have the hope of that new life. We have that new life transforming our character, but these professional mourners knew nothing of that. You know, like Jesus, the passion of the church must overcome insurmountable obstacles. Jesus had divine power to overcome insurmountable obstacles, and without Jesus' presence, we have no expectation of miraculous physical healing in lieu of his absence, the church possesses the fact, though, of the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We have witnessed that. We have seen it by over 500 eyewitnesses. We have those who have touched and seen and have literally been invited to place their hands into the scars left by the cross of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And this reality gives us the amazing promise of life. We're no longer under the dominion of sin and death. We can think differently. We can act differently. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, the whole chapter 15 gives us so much information. But there, Paul reports, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 26 of that chapter, the last enemy that will be abolished is death in its whole expression. Verse 50, Paul commends those of us who have yet to receive completely the promise of release from death. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So here in this sense, physical death is going to serve. That's amazing. It's going to serve the plan of the resurrected Lord for us. We have to, this seed, this physical body must go into the ground and die if we're going to enjoy the incorruptible. For this perishable must put on imperishable. This mortal must put on mortality. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, what is our task? Is our task to go around and heal and seek healing? Absolutely not. Jesus will take care of that when he comes back. We do not have divine power. But we're to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Listen to the, this truth in 2 Peter chapter 1. Well, how does this work? What is the practical impact for us? Promises, this kind of promises unleashes a powerful process that has the same net effect that Jesus was going for when he was here on this earth. 
the diminishing of the corruptive influences of sin and death. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises. This, 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 uh, this, this divine power, by these he has granted us these promises so that by them the promises Peter teaches us we can become partakers of the divine nature Holiness. We can partake of holiness. Having escaped, and here it is, the corruption that is in the world by its lusts. Outside of Jesus Christ, we are under the dominion of sin and death with all of its corruptive influence, and there is no possible way of escape, and life grows in complication and disorder. And everything we touch seems to turn to ruin. But in Christ, we have, because of the bodily resurrected Lord and Savior, we have promises that we possess. And these promises enable us to partake of the divine nature, the promise that we have been, uh, and the realities of being placed in Christ, the promises of a future hope, a living hope. And as these truths engage our rationalizing apparatus and our decision-making apparatus, we are able, by God's grace, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to make progress unto holiness. And in holiness is ecstasy of living. It takes... It removes the chaos of life and replaces it with blessed simplicity. The Old Testament saint viewed it this way. He, he longed for a plain path. These were agricultural farmers, and, and they, many of them lived among the rocky hills of, of Judea and, and, and the nation of Israel, and they hated taking their sheep. They, they just up on these rocky, sloped places, and they just longed for a flat plain path. That's what, how we want to view holiness. God will give us that. So without Jesus' presence here on earth, we each, we each, each of us must endure and persevere through death and sin. The events, the physical realities of those things but we can escape its corruptive influence in our lives. The lives of our loved ones and the lives of our communities as we live and share with them the promise that directly results from Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. In this sense, we escape the power of sin, the penalty of sin. We have yet to escape its presence. That is yet to come. But we can enjoy an escape from its morally corruptive influence in our lives. So Jesus' passion transcends class, gender, or age. It overcomes what seems to be insurmountable obstacles. And our third proof is this, that Jesus' passion takes, into, takes no account of personal expense in order to destroy death, sin, with all of its corruptive influence. Uh, verse 40, we read here, And they were waiting for him. Jesus comes, sails back, and there they are waiting for him. Why are they waiting for him? Are they waiting for him to finally submit to his authority, to forgive their sins, to repent, and to ask him to rule their lives and to tell them how to live? No, my friends, that's not why they were there. They were opportunists. You know, opportunist abuse comes at great personal cost. You know the old adage, fool me, what? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Can I say this, that that idiom is absolutely unintelligible to our passionate Lord when it comes to to beating back death and sin wherever he finds it. 
the motives of people seem almost inconsequential. In fact, his own ceremonial purity is about to be compromised as he seeks to beat back sin and death. And, and, and it's going to be compromised by this woman who touches him. Read Leviticus chapter 15. You'll find that to be touched by someone in this condition and later on then to go, go touch the dead body of, of anyone was to cause an individual to be ceremonially unclean and socially outcast. Jesus was willing to have that compromise. Sacrificing, sacrificing social standing certainly comes at great personal expense. Jesus sacrificed his ceremonial and social standing by allowing himself to be touched by this woman. And later on, as we mentioned already, by, by touching the dead child. It is noteworthy in both these instances that faith plays a role in the physical healing. We don't want to think that these, these moments of, of faith are, are eternally redemptive. I don't believe our, Luke is saying that in this text. But they, it does play a role in their physical healing. To the woman, he proclaims that it was her faith that had made her well. And he encouraged her to go in peace after he had called her out. To the ruler of the synagogue, he commands faith to replace his fear. We know that Jesus forced the faith of the woman to be demonstrated publicly. We, we read, when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. All the people, she proclaims, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus wisely had taken these steps, has wisely pursued her not allowing her to remain off in the shadows. He knew that if she would be to receive back into normal religious and social intercourse, it was necessary that her cure become publicly known. He wanted to make clear to her that it was not her superstition about touching his garment that somehow brought about healing in her body. Rather, it was her faith in him, in recognizing him to be the source of power. And if she would but, in fact, trust him to be the source of power for her eternal destiny, it would appear that that may have, in fact, happened. And finally, addressing her in such a way, calling her out, gave Jesus the opportunity to establish a personal relationship a relationship that would lead to eternal life, not just temporal, physical healing. And, and in fact, we see that Jesus calls her daughter. This is the only woman in all of recorded scriptures that Jesus ever addressed this way. So Jesus calls her out publicly so he could do more than just merely heal her physically but so that he could make her his daughter and invite her into eternal relationship with him. So like Jesus, the passion of the church will come at great personal expense. You know, the church often finds herself enduring opportunistic sin natures, doesn't she? I, I you have probably had to endure my opportunistic sin nature. Um, hopefully it got beat back with the same passion that Jesus has for beating back the corruptive realities of sin in our life. We've not only endured our own opportunistic sin natures as a church family, we've, we've, we endure the opportunistic sin natures as we seek to aid the lives that are in wreck and ruination of unbelief in our community. We, we will often be found ourselves potentially being taken advantage of. You know, it's true that we constantly sacrifice social standing as we march to the beat of a completely different drum from the culture of the world in which we are found. 
But where is our comfort found, dear church family? Well, our comfort is buried deep in Jesus' high priestly prayer for us. Verse 18 of John chapter 17, we read these words, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. For their sakes, he's speaking of the sakes of the apostles, the disciples in his purview. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So we have this in-truth sanctification process that Jesus guarantees as he sets himself apart for the cross work and the empty tomb and the ascension, as he sanctifies himself in his life in obedience. He says, but I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us, church. That is Grace Church of Mentor in the 21st century. We are those who believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles. And he prays for us that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they also may be in us. See, here's the partaking of that divine nature, this unity that the Trinity enjoys. We, in holiness, we enjoy that oneness as our character begins to express the realities of holiness and we can enjoy this oneness of the father you and the father i'm sorry i and you and they also uh, uh, may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me so in conclusion tonight jesus's passion was to bring an end to the dominion of death and sin I think we can argue that and prove that clearly from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 and following. Jesus was not here to be a charismatic leader. He was not here to be a prophet of social change, nor a Christian anarchist. What drove Jesus, the head of the church, is what must fundamentally drive us, members of Grace Church of Menor. Let us never lose sight of what is really going on. The enemy is death. And sin, with all of its noxious, morally corruptive implications in our own lives personally and in the lives of those who are under our influence. May Jesus help us to rightly identify the real and true problem in our own lives personally so that we can accurately apply Jesus' remedies May we do so with the passion that Jesus exemplified as he lived here on earth. A passion that he will have when he comes again in glory and we enjoy him seeing him, and we will enjoy him seeing him physically again working this out. But until then, may we join him in beating back the corruptive influence of death and sin, recognizing death and sin to be our greatest enemy. May the Lord bless you, dear church, as you consider the truths of this passage. Thank you. Good night.